Hi, welcome to Hollywood Crime Scene. This is Rachel Fisher. Hi, this is Desi Jedekin. Hey. Hey, Rachel. <laughs> it's hot in here. Is it? I'm hot. Well, maybe because you've been here longer than I have, so you're all... I'm drinking iced coffee, too. With half and half? Of course. <laughs> Everyone knows. Are you a milk drinker? Hell no, but I have to have cream in my coffee. Brendan's a like milk sugar. drinker. Oh, that's disgusting. He... <laughs> He loves it. He's like gets an ice cold glass of milk. and I mean, that makes me want to vomit. <laughs> like to think of someone drinking a glass of milk. I don't know why. Like he, I don't mind milk and cereal or something. But no, I mean. I, don't know. I was just wondering. He's a growing boy. He's a growing <laughs> 38-year-old man. He needs his milk. Okay. Anyway, uh, let's start off the show by thanking this week's patrons. Okay. So this week, we not only had several new people who donated to the Patreon, but we also had uh, old patrons who upped their pledge to the $10 level for our new show that we have. Right. So, and the good news about that is that we reached our goal on the $10 level, and now we'll have two episodes of that hour-long new show per month. So if you were kind of hoping for more, now's your chance. <laughs> <laughs> right. You get two for the yeah, price of one. Yeah, the first episode is up now on Carl Tanzler, which is an insane story. So there's your little plug for that. So right. let's hear the new patrons. Okay. So this week we had Grant, Mary, Joanne, Georgia, Megan, Aaliyah, Michaela, Aiken, Justin, Tara, Emily, Melanie, Sydney, Megan, and Jacqueline. Thank you, guys. That's Thanks so awesome. So much. We really appreciate it. It helps us so much. I guess we can save some of that business stuff for the end. I don't know. I got all... <laughs> so yeah, I have some announcements at the end, so stay, stick around for that. All right. <laughs> okay. So today I'm going to tell you a few tales from people who were in the movie Dirty Dancing. Rachel, did you see the movie Dirty Dancing? I haven't seen it probably in 20 years, so... Okay. Well, I know all the classic yeah. moments, though. Dirty Dancing is a pretty iconic film, I would say. It came Very. Out in 1987, I think. I feel like everyone at least knows the title of the movie, but if you need a refresher or, or don't know what the movie is about, it stars Jennifer Grey and Patrick Swayze and Jerry Orbach. For some reason, I have to mention that because I love Jerry Orbach. <laughs> Come on, he was on Law & Order. Yeah, he's great. Uh, he's amazing. It's about... Jennifer Grey plays a character named Baby. She's basically like a Jewish girl who gets stuck in the Catskills one summer with her family, and she's at some kind of resort-type uh, place. While she's there, she meets like a hunky dance instructor who works at the resort, and that's played by Patrick Swayze. His name is Johnny. And through a set of circumstances, they become dance partners. I'm going to get a little more into the story of how that happened in one of my stories later. So... They fall in love, and there's like a big dance number at the end, and I, I've had the time of my life place. There's a lift. <laughs> the, whole, the, whole, the lift, the whole thing. It's like a, a big summer movie, and I think it did come out in the summer of 87. Right. Um, it was a huge hit. It's, I think it's raked in over $200 million. The fact that the movie is such a big thing, and I, I know a lot about crime and Hollywood kind of stuff, it was surprising to me that I had never heard of these two crazy crime stories that are associated with a few of the cast members. So I want to thank our Facebook group member, Beth Ann. She's the one who kind of shared some of these articles 
with me. And then I found a bunch more stuff and it was kind of shocking to me to read them because they're kind of crazy, especially the second one I'm going to get into. So I kind of felt like most people probably didn't know them as well. So I'm excited to uh, tell you about them today. And I'm, like I said before, I'm going to save the crazier one <laughs> for the second one. But the first one involves uh, a woman who was an actress and dancer. She was in the movie and her name was Jennifer Stahl. Being in Dirty Dancing was for sure her biggest credit. <laughs> it might be her only credit. Uh, in the movie, she just had kind of a bit part. She was one of the dancers who kind of are in the scenes, a lot of the group scenes with Jennifer uh, Gray and Patrick Swayze. So I'm going to tell you a little bit about Jennifer. She was born in Titusville, New Jersey. She was born to a well-off family and she started dancing at a very young age. She's kind of a typical blonde, blue-eyed, pretty girl, but she had a rebellious streak and was kind of into pissing her parents off and being the rebellious, whatever, <laughs> rich girl, according to a friend who had known her for most of her early te or teens and early 20s named Heather Gerdes. Jennifer also like would dabble in selling pot on the side in, in addition to her love of dance and acting. There's a quote from Heather where she said Jennifer had been selling marijuana for as long as she's known her. She felt she had to do everything illegal. She wanted to have fun all the time, but she secretly also wanted to be a star. <laughs> I'm sorry. I love that kind of quote. But it's like, I doubt it was very secret, <laughs> right? Like who wants to be a star and kind of keeps it to close to the vest, right? Like, look, we know all the kids who are those precocious little shits who want to be right. Stars. It's not like they talk about it, but they have very good posture and they're like, <laughs> da, 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 like whatever. So in 1986, it was actually Jennifer who told Heather about an open call for dancers for a movie that was about to start filming called Dirty Dancing. Both of them got the gig, and as I mentioned before, they were kind of back down dancers in these big scenes. Uh, the producer of the movie, a woman named Linda Gottlieb, referred to Jennifer as the girl with the blonde ponytail that flew back, just so you get an idea of how extra she was. And I don't mean extra and like extra, I mean like extra on a movie set extra. That's how, you know, she was not very... Linda also said that a lot of these kids were basically hired because they could dance and they were cheap. So besides her... Minor appearance in Dirty Dancing. Jennifer also had a lot of forgettable roles in other movies, and one that stood out to me was a movie called I'm Your Man, in which she played woman with Professor Bob. <laughs> Wait, so she her character was credited as being lumped in with a different character? Yeah, woman with Professor Bob. That's I have sad. no idea what this movie is or who Professor Bob is, but I don't like him. <laughs> For some reason, he seems like an asshole. Bob. <laughs> Sorry. Professor Bob. Professor excuse Bob. Excuse me. Like, excuse me. Like, if you're a professor, wouldn't you use Robert? I'm sorry. <laughs> or your last name. Right. <laughs> professor Bob. It just seems like a little shady to me. So when her career in Hollywood basically kind of fizzled, she moved on from acting completely, which is good because I love when people give up their dreams in pursuing an acting career. This is, Desi, like this is Desi directly <laughs> shading me in my own home right now. <laughs> Yes, I'm still a member of the union. I still pay my SAG dues. Please. She just wants the screeners. Come I on. <laughs> it's worth it. Uh, no. So, you know, she gives up acting. She has some ups and downs in her personal life. She got married and divorced. She's still kind of on the outs with her parents. But she ends up getting an apartment above New York City's famed Carnegie Deli. And it was there that she installed a low-budget recording studio in one of the rooms rooms that she had and she began a singing career 
Uh, one of the articles I read, it said she had a CD that was sold in Japan, which is like hilarious to, to me because like, remember the days when someone had a CD, it was like a big <laughs> deal. <laughs> Well, this was like the mid eighties and she had a CD. Right. So to have a CD, it's like you had to actually like produce it and spend money. It wasn't right. like now you burn it on your <laughs> laptop or, right. or like have a sound cloud that you promote in your viral tweet. Like, uh, having a CD back then actually meant something, even if it didn't sell. And Japan was also like that market where everyone's like, Oh, I'm big in Japan. Totally. <laughs> or Germany or something. <laughs> so she also began selling pot again on a more serious level. And it was in this par- apartment that she began running a sort of drug operation, which was pretty profitable, profitable since at the time marijuana prices had escalated to like a high, like a, I don't know, like the market highs, but apparently at that point they were at a real high and she would routinely have about $10,000 worth of pot in her apartment at any given time. Damn. And that's just for a, like a medium level dealer. There was no arrest record for her in New York City. She had never been arrested for dealing drugs, but she was listed on a like a watch list for people who were traveling to areas like Puerto Rico and Barbados, where I guess they would buy weed, or uh, and she was on some other sort of um, list about areas where heavy drug trafficking were happening in New York City. On May tenth, two thousand and one. This mid-level drug enterprise went next level. Jennifer was at her apartment hanging out with Anthony Vader, 37-year-old hairstylist who worked for movies and the soap opera Guiding Light. He was there to cut Jennifer's hair. She also had some friends over, Rosamond Dane and Charles Hallowell. Both were 36, and they had just arrived from Virgin Islands where they were living, and they were going to a wedding in New Jersey. And a man named Stephen King, who is described as being an accomplished trombonist and a bodybuilder, which I found to be a very odd combination. No offense to Mr. King. I just want to say something that just reminded me. One of the worst at replies I ever got in my life (laughs) was from a trombonist. Wait, I remember this, I think. Remember this? Yes. This was like a year ago. I tweeted about, it was like the 10-year anniversary of Britney Spears' best (laughs) Best album, Blackout, which came out in 2007. It's her best album. You can at me. I don't care. We can debate this. I love talking about this. Okay. Anyway. So, so at Reply Rachel, please. So I I tweeted about like happy 10-year anniversary to one of pop music's greatest albums, Blackout. And this straight man got in my mentions and he was fucking furious at this tweet. He said, oh, so you think just because you've been sexually assaulted, you have an authority to talk about music? And you're like, yes. <laughs> yes, I do. That was literally what he said. This guy was so enraged that I called, that I was praising a pop music album that I didn't even say was the greatest pop music album he was of like, all time. look, I've been kind in the past because I know you've been sexually assaulted, <laughs> but this is a bridge too far. <laughs> he was, I have never seen a guy more angry before than this guy was. And so I was like, I, I don't remember what I said to him, but he was like, well, I, or he was like, I play the trombone and the classical guitar. Ugh. And I was like, yeah, but do you make fucking bangers like Britney Spears? Yeah. No. Have you ever recorded Toxic? <laughs> right. <laughs> like, like, hello. No. So I just, I just, that reminded me, but he was a trombonist. And up until that point, I probably, you know, as you had no ill feelings towards trombone. No, players. I loved, I love trombonists. I like, love bones <laughs> i grew up listening to ska music so obviously i love trombonists okay, but this rachel. guy was okay rachel <laughs> <laughs> just, 
Look, Chinese- just because you've been sexually assaulted doesn't mean I'm going to accept that you love Scott. <laughs> Don't at me. No. Um, so uh, Stephen was actually in the apartment because they were going to work on some music together. Right. And he, I mean, this, this is sort of a bad thing to say. He did arrive with a guitar to this little get together, but I don't think we should hold it against Stephen because he. <laughs> okay, um, <laughs> so uh, about seven twenty-seven p.m., two visitors approached, uh, kind of buzzed in, and Miss Stahl opened, you know, buzzed them up, and she opened the door to them. The men, and according to Vader, who was the hairstylist, he heard Jennifer say, "Sean, what are you doing here today?" So. Obviously, she knew one of the men. I mean, she buzzed them up, so it wasn't like, you know, she didn't know them. Once the two guys came in, Sean immediately ushers her into the recording studio room, and his companion uh, took Mr. Vader and Mr. King, lied them down on the floor, and began binding their hands and feet with duct tape. (gasps) According to Vader, he could hear Jennifer in the next room saying, take the money, take the money, take the drugs, don't hurt anybody. And then he heard a single shot while his hands are being bound with duct tape. The man who was ta- duct taping his hands said to the man in the recording studio, why did you have to shoot her? Rosamond, Dane, and Hallowell, the couple, they came out of a third room and were ordered to the ground, and they were also duct taped hands and feet. Uh, the senior investigator, who, who the crime scene investigator, said that Mr. Vader heard a quick boom, 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 including a shot that hit him in the head. That is always like the creepiest fucking thing to me when someone says they hear a bang and it's actually them getting right. shot in the head. Right. That's like crazy it's to chilling. me. That yeah, isn't it chilling? It's like chilling. I'm always freaked out, and I've heard that in maybe some of the stories we've covered. Yeah. But I've definitely heard it before where they hear a loud bang in their ear, and it's like you just got fucking shot in the head. Like, right. It wasn't like someone dropped a pot in the kitchen. Like that is like creepy to me. It's so creepy. The male of the couple and Mr. K- Stephen King not the writer. <laughs> they died instantly. So that's yeah. why I don't want to mock Stephen uh, too much. And Miss Stahl died within a few hours after being shot in the head as well. The two survivors of the incident probably survived because the gunmen were doing this really, really fast and not like prepared to do this clearly. So they basically lied them down on the floor, shot them in the back of the head, but they like moved and were like, you know what I mean? They like, kind of did it really sloppily yeah. and kind of, it was a rush job. So as I said before, uh, the hairdresser, Vader, he actually calls 911 to report what had happened to them. So he's giving all these details to 911 operator. That's why there's such a clear idea of what happened uh, during this incident. So, I mean, basically, this is like a New York City street, a very popular area. This is happening while like people are walking around down on the street below. On the scene when the police came, there were six pounds of marijuana still there, psychedelic mushrooms, and about 1,800 cash in a suitcase. So they didn't even get everything right. that was there. The police basically immediately suspected that someone knew she had this cash drug business at her apartment and where it was a robbery that was either gone wrong or always planned that way. They had a surveillance camera in the apartment building that apparently these two guys had no clue about because they had very sharp images of the two men who came to the apartment building. And they also had fingerprint evidence um, on the scene, I think that was on the duct tape. There was like right. the guy's fingers. So this was a very sloppy job. Right. So one of the uh, sets of fingerprints that they found matched that of a career criminal and parolee, a guy named Andre Smith. He should know better. He immediately, he heard the cops were looking for him because obviously his fingerprints and everything are on whatever, the dat- in the database. So he was quickly like identified as the person who right. was in the apartment. 
So when he heard police were looking for him, he uh, immediately turns himself in. He initially denies that he had any role in the crime, but shortly after being taken in uh, and questioned, he basically copped to everything. He he did that because his, they, they're like, we have your fingerprints, basically. So right. he kind of denied it until he realized that they had physical evidence. So his story that he gave the police that day was that two days before the murders, he and a man named Sean Sally met up. Sally was like a friend of his cousin's. And Sally heard that Smith was complaining that he needed some money. and He suggested um, that they pull off a robbery. Initially, Smith was like not into it. Two days later, he saw they, they met up again. And this time he was like, sure, let's go. Let's go for this robbery. Sally kind of sold it to him by saying it's a white girl who deals weed to a lot of people in the music industry. He said it'll be easy. No trouble. No weapon. There's no guard. We'll be in and out. So that day, the two men went to the apartment building. They kind of just got buzzed up, as I said before. Everything he says kind of matches up Vader's um, story that he gave the cops and also on the 911 recording. According to Smith, when he heard Sean Sally go into the room with Jennifer and heard the shot, he immediately was like, what did you do? And then he claims that Sally shot the other uh, victims and that the reason he did that was because they knew who they were, like a typical story, right? So the men split the cash and drugs back in Newark and then parted ways. Uh, Smith, of course, you know, in this in this sort of whatever questioning, he's like a f- very remorseful, I would take the whole day back, da-da-da-da, I feel so bad, I'm sorry for the people, they didn't deserve to die like that. Now, uh, Sally was eventually captured in Miami, and both men were tried simultaneously in the courtroom. And that's where their stories started changing left and right. They both had wildly different stories. They basically blamed the other person. Mm-hmm. Confessions were taken back and said, I was forced, da 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 Smith was now saying that he was nowhere near the apartment when the murders took place, and his initial statement was involuntary and false. Sally was claiming he was just going to ask Jennifer, her, Jennifer for her cast-off marijuana so that he could sell it in Newark and that he agreed with her that they would split the profits. He said it was Smith who brought the gun along for no reason mm-hmm. after he had told him there's no need to have a weapon and that it was Smith who kind of started the whole chain of events that led to the murders. The saddest testimony for me, like when I was reading some of the courtroom proceedings, was from Rosamond Dane. She testified that her friend Jennifer, like when she buzzed the two guys up, immediately had second thoughts and actually said, I don't think I should have let him in. (gasps) So as they're walking up, she had already had like this thought that maybe it wasn't a good call, which is so sad to me. Like, yeah. So she said that also that when she was lying there bound, he's one of the guys saw her eyeing the front door and that Sean Sally actually said to her, don't even think about going there. He ordered her to get her head down, and she was begging him for sympathy, and she even said that she was pregnant, which was a lie. But it kind of reminded me of, like, Sharon Tate. Like, yeah. this story kind of has, like, a vibe for me because there's multiple people, and just, like, the idea of someone saying, because I remember Sharon Tate was like, I'm pregnant, like, right. just, like, let me, <laughs> like, do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. I don't know, it kind of struck me as similar to that, even though there's obviously tons of differences. It's just so sad to me. Like, It's so sad. The two men were found guilty of secondary degree murder and were sentenced to life in prison. They won't be eligible for parole until like 116 years or something like that. Yeah. Um, and I just wanted to point out that the men, I told you all the things that were left behind, they left the apartment with $1,000 in cash and six ounces of marijuana. So... 
they killed three people and almost killed two more right. for that little amount of money. I mean, that's a typical thing, I guess. Like, where you're like, you just killed someone for $32 in the register? Or right, like, right, yeah. right. It just made me think, like, ugh, like, well, come on. Like, what a sad story. The second story involves a bigger player in the dirty dancing canon or whatever you want to call it. He is an actor named Max Cantor, who you might remember as piece of shit Robbie Gould, the one who knocked up Penny and blamed it on Johnny. (laughs) (laughs) And he was also the one who was trying to bang baby's sister. He kissed baby's dad's ass and then got busted in the end. Do you remember that scene where the dad gives him money for like Yale or Harvard and then he's like, oh, and thanks for taking care of Penny. And the dad's like, whoa, I thought that was Johnny. <laughs> like, it was like the guy didn't even realize. Right. Like, so he had a pretty big part. Like, he set yeah. off the whole chain of events, basically. So fuck you, Robbie. You were definitely the type of cute Jewish boy I would lay myself onto the, alt for, the altar for, you shitbag. Like, I hate you, and I hate that I want to fuck you, <laughs> Robbie. Fuck you, Robbie. So Max Cantor... Is probably not as bad as Robbie, but he's just as cute because he played Robbie. So <laughs> I was pretty excited. So Max Cantor was born May 15th, 1959, and he was kind of born into a showbiz family. His dad was a theatrical producer named Arthur Cantor. I briefly looked it up because I knew Rachel was going to be like, what shows did he produce? <laughs> and I couldn't find what he did. Like, I mean, I didn't, I gave it like a few seconds. I, I looked up his Wikipedia and then I looked up international broadway database or whatever maybe they were little shows in the catskills desi we don't don't know know, but well rachel this guy was loaded (laughs) so i figured they had to be like at least like hello dolly or something like one something or other like i said before he grew up very privileged he lived in the infamous dakota apartment building in new york city and he had his hair cut as a child by vidal sassoon what i know so he had to have produced some big or maybe it was like the producers where he was constantly producing things and then having them fail like a scam. I don't know. I'm I'm completely debasing Arthur Cantor's memory. He's very, <laughs> I'm sure he's a very nice man. So Cantor kind of began acting on an unprofessional level, like at camp productions and like school stuff. Uh, but he got more serious about it when he attended Harvard and he eventually graduated from Harvard in 1982. His first big role was in Dirty Dancing uh, and after that, he started a movie called Fear, Anxiety, and Depression, the early name for Twitter. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm bump. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> it wasn't as catchy, I guess. Beauty should be good for you. And that's why we're excited to tell you about Beauty Counter. Beauty Counter is a clean makeup and skincare brand that started in 2013, disrupting the beauty industry by shedding the light on the need for stronger ingredient regulations in the personal care products that we use daily. Today, Beauty Counter is the leading clean beauty brand creating innovative and high-performing products that are safer and cleaner than even their like-minded competitors. So what do we mean by clean? Over 1,800 questionable ingredients are never used in Beauty Counter's formulations. They call this their never list. You can learn more at beautycounter.com, where you're also going to want to check out their incredible products. Best of all, if you're a new customer and you order through March 15th, you'll get free shipping on your order of $100 or more when you use the code HOLLYWOOD. Once again, to get free shipping on your order of $100 or more, go to beautycounter.com and use the code HOLLYWOOD. As most of us have found out the hard way, getting into debt is easy, getting out of it is hard, especially if your credit score isn't great. 
Thankfully, now there's Upstart.com, the revolutionary lending platform that knows you're more than just your credit score and offers smarter interest rates to help you pay off high interest credit card debt. I know firsthand that there's nothing more frustrating than trying to pay something down and your payments are pretty much just paying off the interest. Upstart goes beyond the traditional credit score when assessing your credit worthiness. Upstart believes you're more than just your credit score. They believe in you. The best part? Once the loan is approved and accepted, most people get their funds the very next business day. Over 400,000 people have used Upstart to pay off credit cards or meet their financial goals. So free yourself from the burden of high-interest credit card debt by consolidating everything into one monthly payment with Upstart. See why Upstart is top-ranked in their category with a 4.9 out of 5 rating on Trustpilot and hurry to upstart.com slash Hollywood to find out how low your Upstart rate is. Checking your rate only takes a few minutes. That's upstart.com slash Hollywood. So a lot of this, uh, and I'll post this link, I think, to our Facebook page. Some, a lot of this information that I'm going to have quotes from Max was from one interview he did at some point in his life. And I'll post a link to it because there was a ton there that I didn't end up using because he talks a lot. Max had this to say about his acting career and how hard it was for him. When you're an actor, everybody's always looking at you. I think I'm a very talented guy, but I'm also self-destructive. I get in my own way. I alienate people. I'm extremely loud and noisy, and I push too hard. I got a role in a TV pilot called Diner, which was written and directed by Barry Levinson, and I wasn't very happy with my work. I have great ability and natural talent, but I gave a poor account of myself, and Levinson was displeased too. He thought I could have done a lot better. So I feel like he wanted to act and he liked maybe that stuff, but it just was not cut out for the business. Or So after bombing on that pilot, Max decided to focus on his other love, writing. He moved to the East Village with his girlfriend and really became enamored with the Lower East Side at the time and the people who were populating the area. And this is like the late 80s mm-hmm. <laughs> after Dirty Dancing. He had an experience at something called the Abby Hoffman Memorial May Day Smokin'. <laughs> Sorry. Wait, Abby Hoffman? Yes. The, the yippie? Yeah. Well, he was not always a yippie, right? I did a report on him once in school. Really? Yeah. Uh, Didn't he like murder his girlfriend at some point? Or is I, that a different guy? Oh, I'm thinking of a different guy. It was like in that group. I'm, I'll tell you what this event was about, but it's basically people getting baked and handing out joints. He met a guy there named Mickey Cesar who called himself the Pope of Dope. And he's actually walking around in like some sort of Pope costume. And he had an early marijuana delivery service called Dial-A-Joint. So dated, but ahead of its time. <laughs> yeah. Dial-A-Joint. Max was blown away by this colorful cast of characters and surprised no one in journalism was really writing about this scene. He became obsessed with the hierarchy and who the leaders were. Um, According to Max, I was trying to figure out what the hell was going on. I wanted to penetrate this movement and understand who was who. I don't know why I picked on it, but I just thought I could really map this world and assuage my curiosity. (laughs) Did I say that right? Assuage. Assuage? Yes. I don't think I've ever said that word out loud. (laughs) Okay. Look. I'm reading this and I'm thinking, did you ever hear of San Francisco and Haight-Ashbury and like Marin County in like the late 60s and early 70s? Like to me, it's like this has happened before. Like, right. I guess he just maybe being a rich kid was never around. He wasn't exposed. And it was in New York. So maybe it was like, I, I have no idea. While he's like sort of poking around and like really immersing himself in this world, he discovers a place called the Temple of the True Inner Light. This was a temple whose members worshipped not God, Rachel, but drugs. I'm sorry. They referred to themselves collectively as the psychedelic. 
sorry. This is all, this is happening in like the late eighties, Rachel. <laughs> I'm like amazed. So Max said he like goes to this temple. He knocks on the door. He asks, what is this place? And they say, it's a temple. <laughs> sorry. They give away their communion at this temple is basically like a non-controlled psychedelic. It's like a tab of acid. Ma- according to Max, they came up with some sort of chemical that was not illegal at the time, but is probably illegal now when he did this interview, I think it was 1991. Um, but they gave this freely to everybody who came in through their doors. According to Max, they had a lot of people, like people would come in from New Jersey and say, hey, let's go trip out at that temple in the right. East Village. So you would get these drugs, but you weren't allowed to just like get the drugs and then go trip out in New York City. You had to sit there and listen to For their, their nonsense. Yes. <laughs> so according to him, he's like, you can't just, you know, trip out. You have to even run outside and groove. You have to sit there and listen to their, you know, spiel, which is not entirely pleasant, at least for those who aren't enlightened. So Max decides he wants to write an article about these, this temple and these guys. I do love to think of these bridge and tunnel people coming in like Jersey Shore, <laughs> listening to the spiritual shit just to get fucking high. Next door to the temple was a place called the An- Anarchist Switchboard. I just love how like each p- each of these places is in like increasingly infuriating. Things. It's <laughs> the, like the Anarchist Switchboard. Yeah, it's also irritating. So one of the people he meets at the Anarchist Anar- Anarchist Switchboard is a man named Daniel Rakowitz, and he is famous for walking around the Lower East Side with a rooster on his shoulder, and he calls himself the new lord. No offense, but my hometown of San Francisco and Marin County invented all of this irritating shit. I know. When I'm reading this, because I am well-versed, and I know people, and I have family from San Francisco, and I go up there all the time. Right. So I know the area. You get it. Like, I get it. So for me, when I'm reading this, I was like, what? Like, come on. Uh... (laughs) So Max decides to use, he'll use Rakowitz as a source on this expose he's going to end up writing for the Village Voice. He asked to interview Rakowitz about this, you know, area and the movement. And of course, Rakowitz is a raging narcissist and surprise agrees to be interviewed. The new Lord gives Max his beeper number. Classic. I mean, you can't really claim to be the new Lord and have a beeper. I just have certain (laughs) rules that I didn't know I had until I hear them. I'm like, no, that's not something that goes together. I'm sorry. Uh, So they make plans to hook up for this interview. Max describes David as being an outrageous personality, amusing and personable, and he's always burning a fat one. Like, this guy is literally always smoking a joint. Surprise. So they set up the interview, and David shows up at Max's apartment with his bike and his rooster. I'm sorry. So obviously, I'm further enraged. How big is the rooster? I'm thinking like, also, he must have like a small New York City apartment. <laughs> like he's coming in with a bike and a fucking rooster. Like, I mean, come on. Can you imagine the neighbors that have to live next to him and he has a also, fucking isn't like, rooster? Isn't like the rooster the thing you don't get because they cockadoodle do? So Max begins to interview him about the temple. And according to Max, he immediately launches into this fucking insane spiel. This is a quote from Max. The new Lord told me he was going to be elected president in 1996 and he was going to take all his enemies and he was going to kill them. He was talking about killing the cops. I asked, do you sell anything else besides pot? And he said, no. In fact, I'm organizing people to rob and murder and make make disappearing persons out of heroin and cocaine dealers and so on and so on. He said all of this with a big smile on his face like he was kidding around. I laughed. I said, that's some pretty explosive shit there that you're saying, some pretty inflammatory shit. 
he said, well, I said the same thing to Mike Taibbi on Channel 2 News. Wait, wait. I'm sorry. <laughs> Not Matt Taibbi. Oh, okay. <laughs> By the way, I thought the same thing. It wasn't until like the fourth time I was like, oh, Mike Taibbi. I have no a idea if they're guy. related. What? They taped me November 7th. Then he goes on a rant about his birthday and November 7th, numerology, oh. BS, like why this and that and yada, yada, yada. This is like, all means he's divine. Like, this is like <clears throat> classic narcissist shit. Right. He also carries around with him at all times in his knapsack with his rooster, a copy of Mein Kampf. And he claims that he's carrying this book around because it has evidence of the supernatural within, within the book. Mein Kampf. Uh, yes. And here's what he says. There's a picture of a cow head coming up with two horns. And if you turn and rotate the pictures 90 degrees, you can see it turns into a picture of me. I'm walking towards you. And there's a blonde hair woman walking towards me. And as I come towards you, you can see my nose and eyes and my hair and my beard and my coat and my shirt and my pants and my slippers and my knees and da 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 I have dog paws. And if you rotate what? the picture again, we turn the picture of a dog looking like a German shepherd and dog spelled backwards is God. <laughs> Sorry. I'm sorry. Isn't that like a bumper sticker? I honestly, it's like some annoying dog lovers bumper right. sticker, right? That's what I'm saying. They should he should sue whoever made that bumper <laughs> sticker. So Max is like, well, I want to see this. Like, show me this picture. Right. Like, can any and like of course uh David starts kind of like, well, you have to look at it for 20 minutes, and like sometimes people don't see it, uh, but it's evidence of the supernatural. And Max is like, well, let me see it. Let me see it. So he p- pulls out Mein Kampf and starts opening up. He says to him, and if anything happens to this book, I'm going to have to kill you. <laughs> I'm sorry. So Max at that point is like, you know what? Like, I don't want to see anything. I don't want to, you know, touch the book. I don't want to be accused of destroying the book. Like, he kind of recognizes, like, I need to, like, just move past this right now. I don't need to see the evidence of the supernatural. <laughs> He's getting really alarmed at this point. At this point when he's like backing off, of course, David is like, no, 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 you have to like, I want you to see it. Like, it's like a crazy person where they like want to manipulate you when they see you're falling against it. They're like, we'll try a new tactic. Like, right. And David's like, well, what if I accidentally spill a Coke on it or something while I'm drinking it? And he's like, well, if you accidentally do that, I would have to kill you. <laughs> so it's just like this like crazy thing that's happening, this back and forth. So Max is just like, you know what? I think I'm done with the interview. Thank you so much. Like he wants to get this crazy person out of his house at this point. Um, so he gets them out of the house and they don't see each other. Less than a month after this interview that Max had in his house, he opens up the daily news and freaks the fuck out when he sees a headline. The headline is a picture of David Rakowitz and the headline reads The Butcher of Tompkins Square Park. <gasps> okay. So here's what happened, Rachel. <laughs> this is really crazy. I don't know, trigger warning, possibly. But why are you listening to this show? You know it's going to get grim. <laughs> so... On September 18th, 1989, Rakowitz, who at the time is 28 years old, leads police to a baggage room at the Port Authority, Port Authority bus terminal. Inside this baggage room, he has a five-gallon bucket filled with kitty litter and chlorophyll-scented pellets. Inside of all of this was a 15-inch carving knife, a human skull, and bones, and that was all that was left of whatever this person was. And that person was Monica Birrell. I don't know how to say her name. B-E-E-R-L-E. Beryl? She's Swedish, so, or Swiss. Uh, she was 26-year-old Swiss, Swiss woman who recently moved to New York on scholarship at Martha Graham School of Contemporary Dance. And like Max, she was also kind of drawn to this seedy Lower East Side scene that was going on at the time. 
And she's kind of like, you would not think she would be part of this scene. Like I said, she's at Martha Graham. She's like a dancer and sort of an elegant woman. She doesn't look like the type who'd be hanging out with like the riffraff like us. Uh, <laughs> she starts working at a place called Billy's Topless, which I've been to. It's like a it's like a strip club, but it's not like a scores. It's like definitely like an old school kind of dive bar strip mm-hmm. club, which I like. Um, so she's dancing at Billy's Topless and then she's, you know, getting into drugs as well. In early August of that year, she and Rakowitz meet in Tompkins Square Park. They share a joint on a park bench. And within like days, they are living together in an apartment on 9th Street in Avenue C. Rakowitz and Burl had been together for a few weeks when on August 19th, she vanishes. Rumors start spreading all over this area that Rakowitz, like something had happened between her and Rakowitz. Rakowitz himself starts to brag about what he's done, but no one really believes him because he is sort of known for being Because he's the guy with the rooster on his shoulder. Right. Obviously, he... The police finally come and talk to him, and that's when he leads them to the Port Authority um, bus terminal. So here's what Rakowitz tells the police when he's finally taken in for this murder. He said that Monica had ordered him out of the apartment, and in a rage, he hits her on the he hits her in the throat with a metal rod hard enough to kill her. Using the kitchen skills that he had learned when he was a part-time cook, he took a wood saw and cut off her head, drained her blood out of the head, and boiled her head in a in a huge pot. After he did that, he said that he claims to friends, and this is part of his boasting that he did around town, that he made a soup of her head and her brains and that it tasted pretty good. He even served this soup to local squatters who were living in his building and around uh, around his building. And one of the squatters claimed that when he ate the soup, he found a human fingertip in it, which I guess he thought maybe could have just been a cutting accident or like whatever, but probably was not. This is from the interview with Max. For weeks, they were saying that he cut up this woman and fed her to the homeless people. It was a horrible story, but I believed it. It added up. It made sense to me. It wasn't just like I was, he was pulling your leg. People were making jokes about it, but it definitely happened. And there was not one word about it in the media initially. This murder had been committed and no one was apprehended for the crime until a month after she went missing. Like, so all these people are talking about this for a month. It kind of reminded me of um, Michael Alec, like how everyone kind of knew that something had happened and like... He was telling people uh, too. All these whisperers were making jokes about it. My God, he cut her up and fed her to us in the park. This was like two weeks before the murder hit the paper. They were not rumors coming up after the fact, but before the fact. By the time the case came to court in early 1991, Rakowitz had changed his story several times. In one version, he insisted that other hands had committed the murder and that he was only responsible for disposing of the body. Of course, he just uh, also claims that he had nothing to do with any of it and just watched in horror. The trial was a fucking sideshow, obviously. (laughs) Like, you can imagine this type of person on trial. During his trial... He complained that his prison guards would play cruel jokes on him, such as serving him a plate of bones for dinner. In court, he threatened to squirt old urine on the prosecutor. I'm sorry. He's, he like threatened to bring in a squirt gun of his old piss to like shoot the prosecutor wow. with. He interrupted like a ton of times with like bizarre outbursts. When the jury found him not guilty by reason of insanity, he thanked the panel members, saying, I hope someday we can smoke a joint together. I won't find fault with your verdict. The prosecution has an overwhelming case against me, but I'll be getting out soon and I'll sell a lot of marijuana so I can bring justice to the people who actually committed the crime. The trial lasted five weeks and nine days and he was found innocent by reason of insanity. I mean, I do think he is 
I think or he was acquitted by reason of insanity. He was sent to a criminal psychiatric center on Ward's Island. I mean, he'll probably, he, he, he's had several appeals, but he hasn't been let out. He's still in jail. At this point, Max is feeling really guilty. He had started writing the Village Voice piece already, and then this fucking happens like right. before it's out. So he knew a lot about Daniel. Um, he didn't really know anything about Monica. So the entire piece was written from Daniel's point of view, mm-hmm. which he kind of felt bad about because he was getting a lot of mean letters after the You mean the David? Fact. Daniel Rakowitz. Did right. Did I switch the names? It's possible. You're, maybe you're thinking of David Berkowitz. Maybe. Maybe, maybe. I was thinking okay. of that. <laughs> uh, forgive me if I did that. That's true. It's like, it's really confusing. I don't know if I did it. <laughs> I don't um, think you did. I think that was me in my head. I think head. I was calling him Rakowitz a lot. You were mostly okay. calling him that. So he got letters like saying, you know, basically accusing him of trying to capitalize on this woman's death. And he was really upset by that. He also told this interesting story that wasn't sort of come out, didn't come out in the trial or in the initial confession. He said that Rakowitz went through great pains to yank out every single one of the teeth from her skull. And the reason he did that was obviously because of the dental records. Right. But then he took the teeth out and put them in like in a little sack inside the skull. So like he, he took each teeth out almost like then they won't be able to identify him, but he, he put the whole sack of teeth inside the skull. So they found it when they got her, you know what I mean? Like, so there's no reason to do that. Right. As far as this guy's clearly deranged. Right. So, I mean, Max kind of goes on about like speculating, what his deal was like was he trying to get caught because he could have literally got away with it if he wasn't confessing no one would have ever put two and two together no one would have ever even looked for her body like do you know what i mean she was a woman who went missing he's bragging about it and that's why they went to he took them to the port authority bus terminal so it's like he could have gotten away with it probably and ended up killing a lot more people right I mean, then Max kind of goes on in this interview saying that he believes Monica's uh, spirit was really powerful and that she kind of, you know, came back from the dead to haunt him and to, like, make him do this and that her ghost got her revenge. Like, that's his sort of spiritual take on it, I guess. Okay. So Max begins working on a book about Rakowitz and, and Monica's murder. Unfortunately, Max did become addicted to heroin while he's in this world. He kind of took up drug habit himself. Mm-hmm. And on uh, in 1991, he died of an overdose of heroin. Well, that's really sad. At the age of 32. Oh, my God. Yeah. That's really sad. So the book never happened. Wow. Um, and as I said, Rakowitz is still in... He's still alive. I just looked he's him up. He's still alive, and he's still in the um, mental the hospital psychiatric? or psychiatric hospital. Yeah. And he'll probably never get out. I mean... I don't know. He's 58 now. Right. So... so. I don't know. So that's the two dirty dancing <laughs> murder stories. Desi. <laughs> Isn't that an insane? I had yeah. never heard of this guy. Like I hadn't heard of him either. I mean, Rakowitz, I knew who Max Cantor was, although I right. probably didn't know his name uh, or anything about him. But yeah, I thought I would have heard this Lori side. I mean, I guess I was still too young to have like followed the trial or something at that right. point, even though I lived in New York at that time. But yeah. I had never heard either one of those stories. I hadn't either. It's pretty crazy. I mean, I looked this guy up, and he looks exactly like you would expect a late eighties psychedelic he looks hippie. Like Jared guy. Leto could play him. <laughs> oh <laughs> he my has god, that long hair. He he looks like Jared Leto could play him, but you wouldn't want Jared Leto to play him, right? Because it would turn into like <laughs> a sideshow, sideshow, right? Right. right. Um, so I mean, this guy looks like every guy you see on the street in Haight-Ashbury and you're walking past him and he goes, nugs, nugs, nugs. <laughs> like he looks like he's trying 
to sell you weed. He looks exactly like you expect him to look. There's like literally zero surprise when right. it comes to his right. uh, physical appearance. Um, but yeah. I can't believe this. Now, there was like more things about he had started some religion too, but I just couldn't get into it and I couldn't find that much on it. But uh, it was also a numerology based um, type thing. And I, I doubt it had like any followers. Right. Wow, Desi. <laughs> Thank you, Bethann. Yeah, I mean, I thanks never for heard that of, suggestion. That's a really good suggestion. Okay. It's definitely like... I just saw this daily news headline from the trial, I guess, and it just says, Cannibal feeds girlfriend to the poor. <laughs> well, it says cannibal exclamation point. It's a classic New York tabloid uh, headline. Totally. For sure. Totally. And this was like a big thing. Like it was in the newspaper, like clearly all the time, like because that's like what the Post and Daily News live for. Oh, my so God. So they're building it up. Yeah. And the cannibal thing, like, people do speculate whether or not that's urban legend or not. That but he I fed feel like, her with this, that he fed the soup? Right, that there was a cannibal aspect to it. And I think maybe the police initially didn't want to promote that part of it. But right. it seems like a weird thing to, and a very specific thing to bring up if it didn't happen. Absolutely. I'm sorry, I can't stop looking at pictures of this we'll guy. We'll post a bunch of pictures Totally, we will. Yeah. The other thing we wanted to talk about was, I mean, we talked about our Patreon, and we know that a lot of people don't have funds, extra funds to donate to that. But if you wanted to help us out, we were thinking about running a little special or whatever to get reviews on iTunes. So we wanted to give a book away. And the book is going to be I'll Be Gone in the Dark. And that's the book my, by Michelle McNamara. And it's about the Golden State Killer. It's a pretty famous book now. Right. So what we're going to do is like write your reviews in the next month or so. And at the end of that, after the end of 30 days, we're going to pick out our favorite review and we'll send you a copy of this book if you want it signed by us. We'll totally know. let's we'll sign, sign it. it. We'll sign it. Yeah, I don't know. Is that appropriate to sign someone else's book? <laughs> if you want that, we'll sign it or we'll give you something signed. We'll with give the book. them something else signed with the yeah. book. Yeah. Um, so yeah, write your reviews and I guess, you know, we'll pick out the review and then you'll email us and we'll send you the book. So that'll be like a little giveaway to kind of help give us a boost on our iTunes reviews, Absolutely. which are already amazing. So get creative. <laughs> you know us. <laughs> Make sure it's five stars. Yeah, don't be like one star and then an amazing review because you will not get the fucking book. Right. <laughs> you know what you'll get? You'll get horse shit on your doorstep from me with a happy face yeah, on it. We'll give you that bag of shit. Right. Um, so yeah, so that should be a fun little contest. Right. Whatever. We're like doing fucking contests now. <laughs> Is there totally. anything else we need to mention? Oh, uh, you can join the Facebook group. Yes. Hollywood Crime Scene Friends. And you could check out our merch on Teespring. I think you can just go to HollywoodCrimeScene.com and it'll right. take you there. There's t-shirts right there. and mugs and tote bags and whatever. So yeah, that's that. Cool. That's the business. That's the business for this week. All okay. right. Awesome. Thanks, Thanks. guys. Bye. Bye.